what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Ian McEwan is a critically acclaimed novelist, author of such works as his 2001 novel Atonement, adapted into an Oscar-winning film, On Chesil Beach, also adapted into a 2017 film, and his latest book, Machines Like Me, which was published in 2019, presents an alternative history timeline in which the UK lost the Falklands War, Alan Turing is still alive, and the internet, social media and self-driving cars already exist. In 2000, he was awarded a CBE, and most importantly, he's a long-standing patron of Humanist UK. Ian, thank you for joining us. A real pleasure to be here. You're a novelist, a teller of stories, and um, I've often heard it said that every novelist is at least a little bit humanist, has to be, in order to be interested in other people, get inside their heads, um, connect with them and so on. Why are you a novelist? What took you in that direction? Well, I mean, I'd go a little bit further and say that novelists are primarily humanists in that they... uh, have adopted or signed up to a form that I think is fundamentally secular. I mean, there have been religious novels, Henri de Montalon, I suppose his most famous Graham Greene, the more uh, modern example. And actually it doesn't work having a deus ex machina in the plot. And I think really, you know, it is a form that grew out of the uh, enlightenment, really got going in the 18th century. Um, Richardson, Fielding, Jane Austen do not have much recourse to religion and they do uh, rather wonderfully, I think, uh, examine current values um, by a kind of general human standard. So um, in that respect, the novel uh, resonates very well, very easily for me. I feel easy within the form. Uh, I think if, for example, you want in literature to worship God, then uh, poetry is, uh, I think, the perfect form for it, Um, or the monograph or whatever else, or the hymn writing of of Wesley or whatever. Uh, But the novel has not really been very sympathetic um, (laughs) form. It's too pluralistic. Uh, it demands a degree of tolerance, which I think if you come from one faith, uh, you find that uh, every other faith is a blasphemer in your own. Uh, So, yeah, I think it is the ultimate humanist form. That tolerance you speak of, that's a type of empathy, is it? You mean a tolerance of getting into the heads of different people with different perspectives? Yes. um, You've got to get into other minds um, and you've got to allow them a, a kind of freedom. Uh, it, it's, I suppose it, it is a form derived of a, a notion of, of individualism. It often follows, it focalises on a particular person or, or a small group of people. Um, 
and their fates are open. I mean, um, again, that rather militates against the religious sense of an all-seeing God who, who might know your destiny or a destiny that you have to fulfill within the eyes of God. So yes, I mean, it, uh, that, that open-ended quality that we find in life, we also find in novels. You're speaking there of, of characters in, in novels. I don't know whether you're talking about characters in your novels, as it were, your characters, but you're speaking about them as, um, as if you need to give them what you would give human beings, as if they were real, uh, give them empathy, give them freedom. You don't obviously see yourself as a novelist as a sort of god. You almost seem like you're extending respect to your own creations. <laughs> is, that, is that how you well, feel about characters when you're creating them? It sometimes does feel like that, Andrew, because uh, if a character starts to work, uh, even though you know that this is your creation, um, if it's functioning well, the writing process, it has to involve surprise. I mean, one of the great pleasures of, of being involved in a novel, especially once you get beyond all the anxieties of whether this is the novel you want to be writing and you are absolutely committed to it, there's no turning back, good or bad, you're going to do it. Uh, you live for those moments in which, and again, it's your own idea, but it doesn't quite feel like that. You've created something that gets a momentum. Uh, and when that momentum offers you certain surprises, uh, you feel extremely grateful. So yes, the, there is a parallel with life. Um, I'm not sure it's true to say that the novelists love all their characters, but they know that they're extensions of themselves and somehow it is the Madame Bovary Simois idea and they have to offer them really what you would offer to the people that you love or respect or um, feel great affection for in life. Yeah, Like a child? Is that like a child? You're sort of no, they're them. more than children. Right. They've, they've got more agency than children. <laughs> Unless, of course, they're children. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, we might come on to children because it's an important theme in, 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 in a lot of your work, I think. But just to be clear, you've spoken then. The only other person I've heard speak quite like this, or at least involved in humanist organisations, is Philip Pullman, actually. He speaks about his characters a little bit like you have. He feels the same about them. Maybe all novelists do. But you're not, you're not talking, of course, when you're talking about your characters developing sort of themselves and so on. You, uh, and these... Um, this coming from somewhere. There's nothing mystical in this, is it? You're, you you know it's coming from your own creativity and your own imagination, even if it seems to be running away with itself. Yes, I mean it, it's really like the operation of mind. I mean, you can set off walking down the street for three hundred yards. You cannot be absolutely sure what you're going to be thinking of at yard two hundred. Um, in other words, the mind does have a mind of its own. There is a kind of aleatoric quality to thought, which is one of its delights. Yes, you can address yourself to a problem. That's another matter. And uh, if the problem obsesses you, you can think about it in a sustained way, maybe for hours on end. I think in, in, in the daily nature of thought, that's quite rare. Mm. It requires a great deal of emotional, whatever, turmoil, uh, shock, emergency something has to be solved but thought in an unstressed way has this meandering quality and we respect 
James Joyce, I think, above all, uh, Proust too, I suppose, um, and Virginia Woolf, for capturing that flow uh, and aiding the whole modernist aesthetic um, revolution, for which we are all still so indebted. Mm. Are you ever doing the former in your novels? Because some people, I think, have read some of the novels as being attempts to, to, to deal with a hard problem, a hard ethical issue, perhaps, or... The hard problem of consciousness. No, no, not that hard problem. Oh. Let's not speak of that hard problem. No, okay. I mean, d- d- difficult addressing yourself to a problem, not just to a story. I mean, some people, maybe this is something that, that readers think more than writers. Um, but I mean, a typical review of some of your novels will be, you know, Ian McEwan takes on the question of X you oh, know, yes, in, yes. in his novel, like Ian McEwan takes on the question of climate change or Ian oh, McEwan yeah. takes on the question of uh, politics today. I mean, and that's not just advertising puff, you know, I think, is it? But because um, uh, a, a lot of your, well, just enjoying them also as stories and, and engaging with them as, 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 as tales about people and, and so on. Um, uh, it, it's not a, a coincidence they've touched on some of the, more, the bigger intellectual themes of the day. Um, so are they also yeah. a vehicle for dealing with a particular ethical problem? I think they can illustrate a problem. Right. I'm not sure they're so good at answering the problem. And, and actually, most readers don't want um, messages rammed down their throats. I mean, the, the problem is a bit like life itself. Um, it's lived forwards, as I think it was Kierkegaard famously said, and understood backwards. Novels are written, you know, three, four, five, eight hundred words a day, but discussed backwards, as it were, by critics. So takes on is just uh, what you say in retrospect uh, in the process. It never feels like that. Um, yes, it's uh, it might be a background, but you do, it doesn't feel like you're taking on the problem of X. Uh, what happens is the problem of X slowly unfolds before you. And it's usually more than one problem, of course, too. Mm. But, I mean, what do novels often show us? Well, I remember, uh, I think it was Iris Murdoch who said, well, you know, but most novels boil down to saying nice things are nicer than nasty things. Not very helpful. well, but then that's a, that could be the same could be said of a lot of philosophy or, you know, uh, yeah. most yeah. human intellectual creations. We get to the bedrock of categorical imperatives. And, yes. and I don't think um, novelists want to do that exactly. What they want to do is show the complexity of life, the difficulties sometimes we have in understanding each other, how easily uh, conflicts can arise between rational people, for example. Um, showing that process is is not quite solving it, but it does somehow make our consciousness larger. Um, The experience of coming to the end of a novel that you love and and a novel of quality that you love is a a sense of widening. Um, It's more than enriching. Uh, and I often refer back to a novel by Saul Bellow, The Dean's December. Uh, the Dean, an elderly American, uh, married a Romanian, and it's uh, back in the Cold War. Uh, he wakes at night uh, in her home city. Um, it's rather grim there and very extremely uncomfortable. There's not much to eat. 
and he hears dogs barking in the night and he imagines that they're saying, open the universe a little wider. Uh, I think that's what novels and by extension, all good art does. It opens the universe a little wider. It makes us maybe more alive to a thousand tiny, tiny, kaleidoscopically tiny things. Mm. Um, and we're hard put to it. Say, well, what does Middlemarch tell you uh, with respect to how to behave? Very hard to say that, except to come back to Iris Murdoch's wonderful reduction to absurdity. <laughs> nice <laughs> things are nicer than nasty things. Without saying that novels can solve um, particular ethical dilemmas, you, you've, you've clearly got a commitment to the novel as a way of enlarging our capacity to discuss those ethical questions yeah and that's a function of the novel you think or your novels anyway well one function i mean I think one function yeah one of it's to give pleasure we mustn't of ever, course that's the best one yes <laughs> touch with the pleasure principle uh, i think that's fundamental something about well it is as i think of course james henry james described it as the book of life and others have used that phrase um it parallels life, especially interior life, but not only interior life, uh, more closely, I think, than any art form. It's had many, many competitors. Its death has been predicted many times. Mm. Yet it still has the ability to unfold for us what it's like to be a person in a time, in a place, uh, a thinking person or a feeling person, the range of emotion, the range of thought. Uh, what it's like to be there and of course we sit down now to 50 episodes of some enormous television series and we're very wrapped up in it but we can never quite cross that barrier to however gifted actors might be and screenwriters we never can quite cross that barrier to be inside someone else and um, it's in that respect I think that that modifying of sensibility, that adding, adding in, in so many myriad different ways uh, opens up the universe a little wider. That's interesting, isn't it? I've never thought of that, actually. However wrapped up I've been in a, in a television series or immersed in it, um, even in something like Star Trek with its own sort of universe, I, you're right, I've never felt I've been another person. Whereas, no. of course, in a novel I often have. You know, I've felt like I can be, be that person. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this obviously illustrates the difficulty of being each other yes. <laughs> at all. And you mentioned a, a moment ago that one of the things the novel did was help us um, to some extent, maybe not overcome, but certainly understand the difficulty we have in understanding each other. Yes. Is that something that you're moving slightly away from the novel, although it was the novel that got us into this, um, a big problem, do you think, in, in, in the world today, or, or, or has it always been in the human condition, this, this, this difficulty in understanding each other? Oh, I think it's right there in the human condition. I don't think it's uh, peculiar to today. Um, I mean, lit literature generally has examined all kinds of human conflict, whether it's physical violence or, or simply uh, the ways in which people misunderstand each other and fall out. Um, 
it was, in fact, that religious novelist I mentioned, Henri de Montalon, who, who famously said, um, happiness writes white. Uh, most novelists are not going to give you 384 pages of happiness. <laughs> um, if you want happiness caught at the moment, you, again, we turn to poetry, to lyric poetry. Uh, we can find some of the most sublime expressions of someone enraptured by a landscape or by being in love. You'll get moments of that in a novel, but typically a novel chases characters through time and it is not given to the human condition to be in a state of constant ecstasy, much as we might love to be, or maybe in our adolescence expect, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't happen. Uh, so we rise and fall and rise again, and, um, and novels are very good, at, again, at charting that. But then so too is drama, so too are television um, series and, and so on. And that's not unique. Um, so yes, uh, when we read of Homer, we read of spectacular uh, heroism and battles, but we also read of that famous moment when Odysseus comes home to Ithaca and Penelope doesn't recognize him. Mm. And they have a little marital spat. Mm. Uh, she tests him, he knows how the wedding bed is constructed. He did it himself, he's a great DIY man. <laughs> uh, and finally everything's resolved but across 2,700 years, we are seeing a very human moment. Um, not, you know, sword-bearing um, Odysseus in a heroic saga, but a man who's slightly sulky that he's not being recognized. But, you know, he's got a huge beard, he's very raggedy. We're living in an age where there's no photographs. Uh, and there are many suitors hanging around, and Penelope's quite justified in saying, who the hell are you? Uh, anyway, they make up. And it's, I think, quite a, an extraordinary moment in Homer uh, that we can feel completely uh, a full understanding of this little moment um, across you know, huge barriers of cultural, technological, civilizational difference. So, yeah, these moments, these, uh, this charting of human conflict is really addressing fundamental issue of the human condition. They are beautiful, those moments. I remember the one in the, the, the moment like that for me in the Iliad is when, um, Hector is, you know, on the walls of Troy speaking to his wife and everybody knows because it's sort of the dramatic moment where it's going to happen that he's going to die. And um, he, uh, his infant son um, is alarmed at his helmet. And there's this wonderful line when they say, and, and Hector and his wife were laughing through their tears. Yes. And you know, you know that moment, you know, you know that when that happened, the sort of moment in our lives when that has happened, you know, suddenly you connect with that the human experience. No, that's a, that's a very good example. Yeah. Um, but if that's the case, then, and we can have such connections, why do you say that, that, that we have difficulty in understanding each other? Because I've, well, quite, well, if anything, what we've just illustrated is that it's quite easy for people to uh, connect with other people. And we are, after all, sort of empathetic animals. That's one of the things that's made our species uh, thrive. Yes, it's true. Um, and we mustn't underestimate... Uh, the ability of language of just, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary, brilliant thing of 
breathing through a little bit of muscle in your throat, yeah. uh, transform, transferring thought from your head to someone else's. Um, and by extension, um, dragging a bit of metal um, dipped in ink across a page can also transfer thoughts from one head into another. Uh, it's all too easy to lose sight of this miraculous thing that we have, this invention of writing. But we do fall out, uh, we do misunderstand each other, often we might have conflicting interests. Uh, we know a lot more these days about how our emotional states uh, affect our reason. Mm. So we might be completely convinced that we're being wholly reasonable, but we're not simply uh, calculating machines. We, we have feelings, we have vulnerabilities, we carry around uh, a kind of backstream of, of, of memory. Um, you only have to look at the turgid language of uh, a legal agreement between companies or countries or individuals where they try to sort of cover every possibility of misunderstanding or mis deliberate misuse mm. of another party. Uh, the language is totally stultifying because it's building up defenses against misunderstanding. So it's there, there's no way around it. Um, and of course, across countries, across language, across cultures, it's, it, it's yeah. all very possible. So but literature has always been drawn to these points of um, dissent. Um, the novel thrives on it. It hasn't done happiness very well. Um, the great exception, well, there are many, many exceptions, but uh, in Anna Karenina, uh, Levin in the weeks leading up to his wedding and then when they're married and out in the country I mean there are I think I don't know how many pages there are maybe a hundred pages of pure happiness <laughs> before things exactly start it's, 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 it's happiness for a purpose isn't it to illustrate that <laughs> I mean yeah. we can't be happy all the time and, and the novels know that um, but I, I, I think the novel I read recently like many people I've Turn to Albert Camus' La Peste. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, sails through the uh, roof. <laughs> uh, you don't turn to that novel for uh, moments, uh, for constant pleasure, and yet you read it with pleasure and with fascination. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. Do you make sense of things through through novels, the novels that you read? I mean, obviously, you're, you're clearly a great reader as well as a, a great writer. And I think a lot of novelists, aren't they quite, people who write novels are quite keen on reading novels. Think of E.M. Forster's lectures all about novels and his books about yeah. novels. And um, mm. Do you make make sense yourself? Do you find yourself seeking to make sense of things through 
reading? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is I think practically all novelists came to the novel as readers. Of course. Um, usually in their late teens or early 20s, there, there comes a point where reading is not enough. It, there's a conversation going on through the generations and the budding novelist wants to join that conversation. Um, yes, it's certainly one part of what I understand about the world. It's part of my mental furniture. I often find um, when I'm writing that all kinds of scraps of poetry um, and other novels drift through my mind. Um, I was, for example, uh, writing a passage um, about an older and younger man um, walking in the woods one day and they both want to pee. Um, they don't actually stand side by side, but I immediately thought of that rather wonderful passage at the end of Joyce's Ulysses where uh, Bloom and Daedalus uh, take a pee shoulder to shoulder in Bloom's garden. Uh, this is we're back in Ithaca, in fact, it's the Ithaca passage. Um, and it's noted that the older man's uh, stream is, is less irruent, lovely word, than the younger man's. You know, that the, no doubt, you know, um, the, uh, the prostate enlarges with age and the flow is, is less gross, but it's beautifully observed. There's something very companionable after this extraordinary day that they are doing this humdrum thing side by side. Why am I mentioning this? It's, I can't send two men to pee in the woods uh, without that flooding in. With that thing, yeah. Mm. Um, so in the end, I thought, oh, well, in that case, I'll refer to it. <laughs> what if, there's no way around it. Mm. I once wrote a novel, Atonement, uh, and I decided to let all those associations from other novels just flood in to, to, the, to the mind of uh, yes. central character Bryony. Um, it's always there. Uh, all of literature sort of piled up on the back. We, we, just like Newton said of scientists, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, methods and techniques of, of novel writing have been refined over the years. Um, free and direct style, whereby you refer in your description in a third person, but you, you change that, you mold that third person description to the mind, the feeling, the thoughts of, of a particular character. It gives you extraordinary freedom. The French like to claim it to Flaubert, um, but there are plenty of very good examples in Jane Austen. Um, it's quite a complex matter to read it. Uh, and yet children, even in children's books now, it's just the- And it's instantly movie. understandable yeah, to a child. it's completely understandable and, 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 and immediately so. But it wasn't there before. You know, you, you, you don't find it uh, in the you know, 16th century prose. Uh, similarly, learning, I think the 19th century, taught us a lot about character and all those wonderful characters in Flaubert, Dickens, 
Trollope, um, inform us not only uh, how to write characters, but also as readers, how to think about character. So it does flood in, it does inform us. Um, it does add up to a kind of worldview, which is a very hard state. Yeah. But it's, it's always there. They're, they're always in the present. That's the other thing. You might have read it 15 years ago. Yes. Novel, but it's in your present tense. It's part of the arrangement of the furniture of your thoughts. But that's true of paintings you've seen and admired. It's true for many of us, I think, um, in relation to music. Obviously, an abstract form, but it carries such weight, not only um, of memory uh, and association, uh, but particular music that is important to you somehow consolidates a sense of self, um, makes it um, it's more definable somehow. Always there, always present. It sounds like you personally um, draw a lot of your identity from being part of that tradition, a living tradition, obviously an ongoing tradition of, of novelists. Is that right? Yes. I. It's not for nothing, I think, that many novelists study English literature or French or German literature at university, um, although there are many, you know, who finish their education, live a bit and consolidate that into some kind of formulation and then a novel. But uh, back uh, years ago, I used to teach for the uh, WEA, the Workers' Educational Association. Oh, yes. And I used to teach, um, actually, it was a poetry writing class. Um, uh, which was also meant to be a novel, a novel writing class, but none of the people in it were remotely interested in novels. So we talked about poetry. Uh, so what I noticed was that those who were writing poetry but had never read any were enormously susceptible to the influence of other poets without even knowing. So they all wrote, tried to write like Swinburne. <laughs> But um, or maybe fragments of Keats were in their minds, or uh, and it was really exciting to say to them, "Well, look, actually read or and, and certain Georgian poets, you know, uh, uh, maybe Hausman was behind there too, right? To actually show them that some of these poets had permeated the culture to such an extent that they were in the grip of them." So the first task was to bring some of these poems into the class and read them and then say, now start to make your own distance from these and see mm. what happens. It would be wonderful to be one of those writers who uh, is so permeated the culture that you don't even have to have read him or her to be writing like them. Um, but it is extraordinary the extent to which the unread um, have absorbed a great deal and need to fight to sort of find the, their own way of doing things. Um, 
So it, it taught me a lot, actually. That's interesting. I mean, that has a wide, a, 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 a potentially very wide application, isn't it? What you're saying there about what you might believe about culture and the need to excavate and uh, acknowledge and then understand and become distant from as a process of developing yourself from the culture, the wider culture that you're in. Is that is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Is that the process you're talking about? Is that something you're committed to for yeah, human we're beings? Not completely free. I mean, um, T.S. Eliot wrote this very famous and I think wonderful essay, Tradition and Individual Talent. We, we're we in the culture um, and we have to accept we're, whatever we do, uh, we can never escape a tradition. You can't just reinvent all of literature and suddenly um, pretend that it's not behind you. If you haven't read it, you're even more susceptible to it. That's, uh, that's mm -hmm. But you're not saying that in a way that you're not conf you don't feel confined by that. You're not fatalistic about that. It sounds like you think there's a great potential if you can acknowledge it, examine it and... And then what? Move on, or redevelop it, redefine it, transform well, it? What's sure the? It is, but, um, no, it, it, it's 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 a resource above all. Um, but you have to define yourself still in relation to it. When you, um, and that was what was sort of wonderful. Actually, getting these students. When I say students, I mean these were people in their fifties. Yes. Yeah. I was twenty-one. <laughs> um, um, yes, quite quite a few of them were retired people who quite a few of them did manual work, but they wanted to write poetry. Um, but it never occurred to them to read any. Mm. I think this is a particular problem for England. If you go to Scotland, or if you go to Ireland, you could be at dinner with... Uh, Ordinary people who have not been to university, left school at 16, but they know an awful lot of poetry. And they can, it often happens, you know, after a few glasses, that poetry gets spoken. Mm. Burns or Yeats. You can't stop it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only way you can stop it is to go out in the garden. Yes, that's it. Oh, to be a smoker. <laughs> yeah. Um, somehow that hasn't quite held together um, in England to, to the extent. Mm. I mean, there are obviously exceptions. Don't hold together. It's sort of interesting. Like a lot of things, I guess. I mean, people say the same thing about folk music in England or folk dancing or other yeah. sort of, you know, things that people have... I've never been quite sure what the when the historic moment that if if what if the generalization that you've said about sort of people in Scotland or people in Ireland is true, like since when has it been true? You know, the assumption is always that it's a long inherited thing, but it could be a very recent thing. It could, you know, like Irish yeah. Irish music or Irish dancing, for example, it's it's it hasn't been going on unchanged for for centuries. Well, it, you know, it, it, it's it's something of an invention. Who knows? But yeah, maybe, maybe the Industrial Revolution cut us off. Yeah, maybe. I that's, know, that's a popular uh, idea. I've read that. Yeah. Advance. I remember being a student. Uh, I was sent, uh, I'd spend a month in Spain learning Spanish. Um, I went to Cordoba. And uh, in the evening, uh, I was with some groups uh, of other students from Newcastle University, and we'd go uh, with Spanish friends. And again, the wine 
start to flow and the guitar would come out and it would be handed around among all the Spanish. And they would sing these wonderful songs and, the, and they were not musicians. You know, the, um, they were just students, but they knew their songs and they all joined them and they handed us the guitar. Uh, and there were a feeble attempt to sing some Beatles songs with people didn't know <laughs> words. And you know what we end up, I, I, I've never confessed this, we sang 10 green bottles. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, what a self-indictment this is. It's... <laughs> oh, oh no. When they were singing these love songs and celebrations of landscape. Anyway, and throwing in some harmonies too. Well, we better move on from that swiftly. Yes. We don't want to expose that shame any further. Um, <laughs> the well, one of the ways in which you're maybe a little bit different from other uh, novelists, I don't know, um, is you've got a very strong interest in science. I think you must be the only novelist whose personal website has a section not just about novels and about stories, but a section entitled "Science," um, where you've got uh, various interviews and writing that you've done about science. I mean, is of course, no one's going to be, no one listening to this will think for a moment that fiction and science are somehow, um, you know, uh, um, completely antithetical. Of course, that's that would be a very sort of silly thing to think. Um, but does one influence the other in your own uh, work and thinking? I think it has, over the years, um, helped shape my worldview, and I would maintain it has shaped the worldview of practically everyone you, you've ever met, including the most deeply devout. Mm. Scientific thinking, the, the scientific mind, mindset. Well, just that we know, for example, that uh, the Earth goes around the sun, and that took a while to get that established, and some pain along the way. <laughs> uh, we know now about the vastness of the universe. Uh, again, it took scientific discovery. We know something... Uh, about the paradox of either the world on a very large scale um, and the world on a very small scale. And we, most of us now at least know that the world of uh, quantum mechanics is very antithetical to our uh, common sense understanding uh, and, and much else. Um, we know that germs exist uh, and that's how they, and they spread disease, that spontaneous generation does not. Uh, nor does wickedness create disease. All these things had to be known, and they were generally delivered to us not by priests, but by scientists. More particularly, I suppose, yes, I, my sense of writing a scene between people being informed to some extent by cognitive psychology, mm. um, a little bit of neuroscience, although it's not awfully helpful neuroscience, at least at this stage in understanding what goes on between people. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it's in, in there. And then you mentioned thinking scientifically or, you know, which is also thinking probabilistically. Uh, yeah. I'm fascinated by the nature of um, coincidence um, of, of the random nature of, of events that can alter lives extraordinarily. Uh, but it's also a, a common everyday thing. How did our parents meet? Uh, most of us are not uh, derived from arranged marriages. And 
if your mother had not stayed in and washed her hair and, and gone to the dance, you wouldn't have met your father. I mean, it's, it's, it's that. Or if the war had not broken out and your father had not been posted to so-and-so, or if you hadn't gone to the same college as, or the same school as, as Mary, uh, you never would have married her. It's almost too obvious to state, but how easily our lives could be other if you'd yeah. gone another school or you know, did, did taken a different job and so yeah. on. <clears throat> and I think, I know that's not quite what probabilistic theory is about, but that sense of the contingency of life. Yes. Uh, is always at the back of my mind when I'm, I'm writing. And in, in, in the, the last novel I wrote, Machines Like Me, I decided to go back a little bit and just sort of play with quite ordinary uh, political events and just see how they could be somewhat different, often hinging on quite tiny things, yes. like how easily we could have lost the Falklands War. If the Argentinians had not, uh, if they had primed their Exocet missiles properly, um, we could have been sitting ducks in the water of the, the, the fleet. This would have had enormous consequences for Mrs. Thatcher's political fate. Uh, it would have also meant in Argentina that uh, a very nasty uh, fascist junta would have survived much longer. Uh, and, you know, all kinds of other things, social but also personal, uh, would have changed for people. Uh, again, Absolutely. that's hardly really science, but somehow. No, but I can see, I can see understanding how. It, gives me yeah. that sense. I can of, see how it's shaping your ideas about yeah. things. I mean, it's funny, I, obviously, the machines like me you just mentioned is, is sort of the most the novel where that's most obvious in terms of the universe that you've created but I was thinking of Enduring Love when you first started talking about uh, you know oh. contingency and mm. moments and and that's I can see actually how being conscious of having a scientific view of how the world works being conscious of the role of contingency and probability and that 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 does it, it obviously is important to you in, in a, as a framing yeah of, of stories the pure chance of everything is is sort of miraculous really social life in that respect it's a weird you may sound like almost a weird thing <laughs> it's well once you step outside the world view that your life is ordained or there's fate destiny um you step into a kind of extraordinary jumble of possibility and um yeah. So it's it could be frightening to contemplate, but it's also um, quite marvelous, quite wonderful. And nearly all of us uh, who are married, for example, and had children, uh, have come at this entirely by chance. Of course. I mean, how else could you do it? Um, but the kind of people who are your children, the recombination of your genes with, with their mother's genes or their father's genes, um, again, um, even once you set about making a person, you don't know if you've had more than one child who you're going to get. Um, I remember a friend of mine used to say, anyone who's had more than one child can never be a Marxist. 
<laughs> it took a lot, a lot of unwrapping that idea. No, it seems it's immediately apparent to me. It's it's determinism right out of the window. Yes. I can see it completely. Yes. The combination is, yeah, is the slayer of determinism. Tolerance, contingency, empathy, freedom, pleasure, being each other, enlarging our sympathies, and novels as a conversation through the generations. Ian McEwan, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you. That was Ian McEwan telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the fifth episode of the third season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times bestselling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. Mm -hmm.